Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is John Van Lunen, and you are listening to Treasures of the Outer Banks, the podcast that celebrates the people and places that make this beach special. This is episode 039 with Clark Twitty, the author of the book called Memories of the Currituck Outer Banks, as told by Ernie Bowden. This is the second time I've interviewed Clark, the first time we talked about his other book, Outer Banks Visionaries, Building North Carolina's Oceanfront. The Ernie Bowden book is an oral history from recordings Bowden sat down for in 2010. Around 2019, Twitty decided to put the recordings on paper and create a book. Twitty was determined to keep the information intact and was able to ask clarifying questions before going to print. This book was published July 5, 2021. A little over a year later, Bowden passed away on July 27. Bowden's story is amazing in the sense that his life spanned a time on the northern Outer Banks from a rural outpost next to the Atlantic Ocean to the present time as a world-class travel destination. Let's get started. So I moved here in 1997, and I met a a gentleman who's a realtor uh, from Duck, uh, Bob Evans, and he told me about this guy up in the four-wheel drive region of Corova and surrounding areas that would ride around on a horse and have a pistol in a holster around his waist. And this was 1997, (laughs) and me being the city mouse, I couldn't believe that that was a thing on the East Coast, that there was, you know, such a desolate area that a guy could just run ride around on a horse with a gun. Uh, Are you familiar with this story at all? I mean, did you witness this at all? There are a lot of stories about Ernie Bowden. He would describe himself first and foremost as a cattleman. Okay. On the Outer Banks, and we think that that's how is that possible? He right. would describe himself if he were sitting right here. I'm first and foremost a cattleman. That is a true story. And he had a registered herd. He had a, the last registered livestock brand in Curry Tuck County. He was a cowboy it's to the amazing. day he died. Yeah. And you write about that in your book, Memories of the Curry Tuck Outer Banks, as told by Ernie Bowden. And it's mostly about the uh, the beach side of Curry Tuck County, right? Correct. And uh, not to be confused with the mainland side of the Currituck County. And you, you write in his book that, you know, a lot of people thought he might have been foolish to start a herd. Is that, do I, am I remembering that correctly? But he went ahead and did it anyway? I think we have to. It's hard for us in the present moment to think too much about history on the Outer Banks. Ernie's father was born in 1903, mm-hmm. the same year, obviously, as the Wright brothers. Right. Ernie was an eighth generation Curry Tuck Outer Banker. So when we think about going that far back in time, to your point, in this day and time, and even recently, the idea of a cowboy on the Outer Banks is a little bit like an astronaut on the Outer Banks. In fact, astronauts might be more common on the Outer Banks than cowboys. (laughs) And yet, Ernie's history was very much cattle, livestock, and carving out a living on the Outer Banks. Like everybody else. So there were a lot of folks over time, as that trade began to diminish, they said, hey, can't we go grow in other directions? But Ernie, to his credit, said, I'm going to be what I've always been, and was defiant to anyone who seemed to think that he couldn't be what he chose to be. I think if there are two words that describe Ernie, it's free will. And that streak of defiance, streak of defiance, defined his legacy on the Outer Banks in a lot of ways. Right. And so you you put this boat, uh, 
check that. You put this book together, and it was made up of recordings of Ernie Bowden. It was. As Ernie began to get a little bit older, the idea that there was one human being that could have such a deep memory, and despite Ernie's age, his memory was crystal clear. Amazing. And as we began to listen to those recordings, the light came on that this needs to be captured and shared as a testament not only to the Bowden family, but also the history of the Currituck Outer Banks. And from that, it was a pretty easy transition over to a book. Right. And whose idea was it, was it to start recording? It was my father's. Yep. Doug and Sharon Twitty sat down with Ernie, and this was a little while ago. I want to say this was probably 10 years ago or a little more, okay. and said, we need some record yeah. of this before it vanishes. Yep. And my comment that you and I have chatted about, our only other real method to capture that is through obituaries. Right. But this was an obituary that couldn't possibly capture 90-plus yeah. years of living on the Currituck Outer Banks. It had to be captured in greater detail and much greater context. Right. And so your your dad started recording this stuff. And w- at what point did you say, hey, I, I, can, I can do this. I can start putting it together and putting it on a book. It was right around the pandemic. So the, okay. the pandemic starts time. to happen and we say, hey, what can we do with some of the things that are just kind of laying around? Right. And those recordings had been recorded, uh, but were not necessarily, hadn't been captured for posterity in, in another way. So we transcribed the recordings, and then began to try to shape them into a narrative that has some flow, but most importantly, some context to it. So it's very important, as we know, to place history in context and to be able to take Ernie's experience and contextualize that against the world, I think is really the interesting part of what makes Ernie's story so unique. Mm -hmm. And did your dad steer the conversation at all or he just let it it he did not he would just ask different questions and then i had the pleasure of sitting with ernie and asking a few other questions the best part about writing history is hey did it really happen this way yeah was there anything else hey what about this hey and i got the the best questions of all to ask a 94 year old person whose impact is felt broadly what would you have done differently Mm-hmm. What would you have told your 21-year-old self? And what would you have shaped the Outer Banks, particularly the Currituck Outer Banks, differently if you had known then what you know today? And those questions are wonderful. There's the great quote, Robert Caro, the LBJ biography. If you ask the right question, there's always more to the story. Right. And so it sounds like your dad was probably fairly close with Ernie. Is that safe to say? I think they had a great admiration for each other. I think Dad admired the authenticity of Ernie. Uh, Mom and Dad, as you know, have had a very deep interest in history on the Outer Banks, the Kerala Village, the Currituck Outer Banks, and recognized Ernie as an icon um, in a way. Ernie would not like that term applied to him. Uh, Ernie never, you never had to wonder where you stood with Ernie. He would tell you in very blunt language. But they recognized that his span of history and appreciation of context was unique. And I think they appreciated that about him. Nice. And and so what, growing up, do you, do you remember meeting him or interacting with him at all? Um, a little bit. Uh, as I grew up on the Outer Banks, they were at, the Bowden family is longstanding Curry Tuck 
Outer Banks. Yeah. And, and the Bowden brothers that I knew of were Tommy Bowden and Ernie Bowden. And they were brothers. They, Tommy was retired from the Coast Guard. And Tommy, for many years, lived at the Washwoods Coast Guard Station, close to Ernie. Ernie was a cattleman, couldn't go in the service because he had a bad foot and was not eligible to serve in the military. That's a whole other story of how he got it. Gotcha. But uh, those two brothers I interacted with a little bit as I was a young person growing up in Kerala and the Currituck Outer Banks, even though I lived in Duck. it was it, They were both institutions and absolutely unique in the landscape. So a lot of those stories about Tommy and Ernie and riding around Karova Beach and Swan Beach are true. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and Ernie was still alive when you published the book, correct? He was indeed. We had several interviews with him as the time the book came out, and he passed away not too long after the book was published. It was important to me right. for maybe some emotional way to try to get that out there while he was alive, and he could see it. He could criticize it. He could set the record straight, because as you know, when you write something, you make mistakes, yep. and he could clarify things and whatnot. And there's a great video interview we did with him really? after the book came out that I think cool. hopefully will last a long time, not because I'm in it, but because it's Ernie being candid yeah. about history. Right. And and what did he think about his story being told? I think he was very humble about it, and he would be the first to say it's not just my story, but it's the story of Currituck County. Remember, he was the chair of the Board of Commissioners. Yeah. He was an elected official for a long time. He felt very strongly about that. He would say it was a history of the peoples of Currituck and how they came to be. But I also think he recognized that he had simply been able, through his eye, to see more than most people had seen. And I felt, in talking with him, that he did sense a responsibility to share that. Right. So, But he was not an egotistical man. Right. He was just an authentic man. Right. And I think he'd be proud of that. And what did he think about the development of the four-wheel drive area? This is a great question. All right. And I think, and I had asked him that exact question, okay. and to his credit, he said, Clark, you have to understand, I had lived on that beach my most of my entire life. If you would have told me for 60 or 70 years of my life that the Outer Banks would become, the Currituck Outer Banks would become what it is today, I simply wouldn't have believed you. That's crazy. It never crossed our mind. Right that what we were doing was building what the Outer Banks would come today. So having known what it has become, would he have done things like density? The Corova Beach, the Currituck Outer Banks still has a lot of unbuilt lots. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't have designed it that way. He may have thought about regulation and tourism in a very different way. Right. But for 60 or 70 years in a life well lived of the Currituck Outer Banks being perhaps one of the most remote places in North Carolina and maybe the country, right. the idea of a tourism machine or a vibrant visitor economy was foreign. And that's not true just for the Currituck Outer Banks. That's true for a lot of the Outer Banks as well. As you know, a lot of our zoning laws are 60s and 70s when yeah. the Outer Banks was a very different place. Right. So I think he liked development. He loved it that it was pro-commercial, pro-development. It created a lot of wealth for Currituck County citizens. But at the same time, he knew that it changed the place, and I think he would have done it differently if he would have known. Right. So what did he—so th he got out of farming and ranching just because he got old and retired? 
I think Ernie would say he never got out of it, okay. but he got he did less over time. Land became less available. The markets became less available. And interesting note, he didn't have to do that anymore because there were other jobs and other ways to earn a living that began to present themselves over time. So he didn't have to do it anymore. And the reality is several of those tourism-related jobs paid better. Yeah. And those were more attractive jobs. And that's a a true story for much of the Outer Banks economy. It was a full-time job. Right. He was was obviously a very resourceful man, as you paint him. And, you know, he he did what he had to do. What what was he? Garbage collector, right? He was an outer banker. He would do anything. Uh, (laughs) He he carved three or four things. On the same day, he'd be an elected official. He'd be a cattleman. He'd be a trash collector. The county would call him to dispose of whales when they washed up, (laughs) and they would say, Ernie, just get rid of it. Right. And then you have to be pretty resourceful to do that. He was an engineer on boats. He did all kinds of things uh, over time, and I think that's part of the story that makes him so unique. Right. I will say, you know, I was I was brushing over the book uh, the last couple of days, and I was fascinated to see that he did so much travel for the government at, at you know a pretty relatively young age. Young, he was a young man, right? I mean, Absolutely. And uh, so, he, so he wasn't just some country mouse. He was out there. No, he knew his way the around world a little bit. And I think it's important to remember, and this is another foreign idea. Ernie went to high school in Oceana. Yeah. Because the Corova Beach community, the Swan Beach, and even the Corolla community to an extent was historically much more aligned to Hampton Roads than it was anything further south. Duck and Kitty Hawk, those were very small villages too. Right. Back then though, you could could could, travel. He could just drive up, up and down the beach. Yeah. And that was a pretty remarkable thing. Most of the, what I'll call from here, you and I are in Kerala right now, the central Outer Banks was aligned to Manio, even Elizabeth City. Ernie, I think, was aligned first and foremost to what I'll call Tidewater, Norfolk, and then secondarily Elizabeth City, but not so much the southern Outer Banks. So I think that's pretty interesting to see. And he traveled all over and did a lot of things. He was not someone who was myopic in interpreting the, the Outer Banks only through a lived experience that was only the Outer Banks. He could interpret it with a lot of context. Right, right. Good point. Did the people locally, were they, did they see his animals as a nuisance or was, was it just so, were they all locals and it wasn't a big deal? They just kind of knew to deal with it. There were, when we talk about locals, there weren't very many of them. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, all 12 of them. <laughs> exactly right. So I think we have to put that in context. I think for a long time, Ernie's livestock was how he earned a living. Right. And Over time, as more people began to enjoy the four-wheel drive community, particularly density introduced some challenges to that, much like the wild horses. And Ernie had opinions on that, too. We'll get to that in a second. (laughs) But I think they were never considered a nuisance because he most of the time would operate them on land that was his. So he owned a lot of that land. I think it was traditionally viewed as this kind of peculiar thing or this spectacle that there was still a real livestock herd. And you can go to this day, see some of the dipping vats and the pens and places where Ernie would operate a cattle herd. I don't think it was considered a nuisance. I can remember very, very distinctly when I was a child, Ernie had a crossbreed of a buffalo and a cow that he called a beefalo. And you would ride around Caroba and there would be beefalo standing in the middle of the road and you would try to drive around them and whatnot and those were Ernie's and it wasn't a a pet it was a it was an investment in how he earned a living right and so let's move to the wild horses what did he think about the wild horses 
Wild horses, obviously, are the number one tourism driver in uh, Currituck County, and depending a little bit on how you measure it. Ernie always thought that there was nothing new about them, that they had always been there. So he didn't think them too remarkable. He thought they were horses. Right. And Ernie, and I don't want to put words in his mouth. These are my impressions. So I don't think Ernie thought they were as unique as perhaps some other folks did, and there was some controversy there. Ernie, I think, thought, though, they're just livestock horses that have just gotten out and about, and I've, I've been interacting with these horses since I was three years old. Right. I'm not sure he necessarily agreed with the Spanish Mustang version of that story. Okay. But having said that, I think he respected the folks who were trying to protect them. He obviously knew them very well. Sure. Um, the folks who really supported the horses as the Wild Horse Fund got off the ground, I think were very much stewards of the environment. But Ernie was always ferociously independent. Right. So the idea that someone else could tell Ernie Bowden what to do <laughs> right. didn't necessarily resonate with him. Right. So it sounds like they may have been a little bit of a nuisance to him. I don't think they were a nuisance. I think they were something he found fascinating in the new Outer Banks. Got that it. this was in something that all of a sudden people found interesting. And right. again, no. Ernie was in his 60s and 70s yeah, when the Outer Banks deal. started to take off. And he would say, I honestly don't see the big deal here. <laughs> right. and, and since when were they so interesting? Because they've been here for 70 years and no one cared. Do you think he ever thought about just grabbing some and turning them into his own livestock? Was that ever considered, I, you think? I think if you were to go back in time, some of those livestock herds and whatnot probably moved around a little bit and would be traded and whatnot. Okay. And they were that just probably happened. I don't think Ernie would ever say, hey, I'm going to take some of these as my own. He was first and foremost a cattleman, right. not horses. But he would certainly ride horseback, and he had his group of horses. But I think Ernie, if he were sitting here, he might say, everybody all of a sudden woke up one day and decided to take care of the horses. I'd been doing that alone for 70 years, and then all of a sudden one day I needed to protect them, and that's what I've been doing. Right. I would just, again, the resourceful outer banker, Yeah. I'm thinking, why wasn't anybody trying to make money off of these free horses? You know? Yeah, and, and Ernie would say that. Like, I just woke up one day, and they were all of a sudden this, Protected, this thing. Yeah. And he said, well, gosh, this, this is interesting. Yeah. So, where do you think he got his horses from? Maybe you wrote about that. I can't remember. He, I mean, Ernie would travel. Uh, yeah. He would move all around during the Ash Wednesday storm. For example, he was in Rocky Mount at a livestock show. Right. He would, if you're a cattleman, you buy and sell, and you try to maximize your profits. So he would move around and sell at different livestock facilities in Virginia and North Carolina. So he would move around to get the best prices and to interact with other folks and to buy things and, and whatnot. So he was not confined just to the Outer Banks. He, he would move around with his horses. Okay. And remember, his access off the Outer Banks for the great majority of his life was north yeah. into Virginia. So we think about all kinds roads of and bridges. Yeah. He wasn't going across those bridges for a long time. He was right. going up into Sand, uh, Sandbridge, rather, Chesapeake, Hampton Roads. Right. So another fascinating thing about the Outer Banks that I wouldn't have seen from a mile out is ghost towns. And Buffalo City is, yep. is a ghost town, um, kind of fascinating in its story. But also I think we have these ghost towns like uh, Seagull. Seagull, Washwoods. Washwoods. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, I, again, you know, City Mouse, just I can't wrap my head around it that, that 
these places were just Portsmouth Island engulfed and yeah Absolutely. deserted that in that case just totally deserted Absolutely um, so so why do you think Seagull no longer existed was it just when you lost the post office or the uh, the uh, life saving station that it was no longer a town <laughs> I think if you go back in time, the genesis of a lot of our villages on the Outer Banks today, a lot of our towns, you could argue today they've become cities, is life-saving stations. Okay. And if you go back in time, those life-saving stations had people who came to work there, and then they had wives, and then they had families, and from families come schools. And then those life-saving stations weren't active all year long, so they had to find other things to do. And if you go back in time, Kitty Hawk Station, Kildawa Hills Station, Ag's Head Station, Curry Tuck Beach Station, and that's where these communities really sprang from. But not always. Sometimes storms would rewrite the Outer Banks, the Ash Wednesday storm, the wonderful recent documentary from the town of Nag's Head, I thought highlighted that really well. And then I think some of the other areas would just change and evolve and people would move away, in some cases for better jobs in some places because the stations or the towns just simply evaporated people would get married and move away and then storms i think had a huge thing to do with it but there are graveyards and evidence of visible today these towns that no longer exist and ernie i rode around with him in four-wheel drive and he could take you to the graveyards and show you where the towns were. He wow. could show you where he was born, and there was a few brick piers of the building that he was born in, brick pilings, right. that was destroyed in the Ash Wednesday storm. And then further north, he could show you church steeples way back in the woods where there used to be towns. Wow. And that was amazing. That I, I think, and I don't know this, this is my speculation, Ernie, at the time of his passing, may have known more about the history of the Currituck Outer Banks and maybe the Northern Outer Banks than anyone else alive. Right. And his memory was crystal clear. Right. That's incredible. So it sounds like just the fragile landscape probably up north there did not help at all with some of these little... No, I don't think so. Uh, as jobs came and went, uh, as the, the wars happened, remember mm-hmm. in World War II, a lot of the male working population of the Outer Banks moved away and did not come back. Right. So you get into what I'll call this sleepy era post-World War II, really through the late 70s. There just that weren't many. There weren't that many people around. A right. lot of the folks who had been working here had left, and I think that was, in a way, the the end of a lot of some of those small communities. Kitty Hawk was the same way. Kitty Hawk had two post offices at one time. It had an ocean side and then a sound side. Had a community oh, called yeah. Otilla. So a lot of that existed, but as the community evolved and populations moved and storms changed, yeah, we saw some consolidation yeah things happen maybe from two people to three (laughs) something like that there's an interesting story in the book about dudley island and as i gather there was a a big freeze a big piece of marsh broke away and started floating down the kurtuck sound and one industrious gentleman named dudley right, decided to go out there and try to stabilize it and it, it 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 took root his, his stories are amazing. Yeah. Uh, some of those ice storms he would describe, the entire Currituck Sound would freeze over and you'd get these violent ice storms that would move, literally move the land. Crazy. Around and different folks would go out there and try to, to move, to, to somehow make sense of that. Yeah. His Ash Wednesday storms, his mother died in the Ash Wednesday That's storm, right. yeah. um, which was incredible. And at that time, we, we talk about how Nags Head, for example, didn't have any warning. Imagine 
the Curry Tuck Outer Banks. Right. Um, and Ernie said his father had walked down. His father was a Coast Guardsman, was the last officer in charge of the Washwood Station, had literally walked down to the beach one morning and looked at the currents and said, we've got to get out of here. Here comes a big storm. They couldn't get out in time. And waves broke in the front door of the Washwood mm-hmm. Station. And his mother died of a heart attack. Crazy. Uh, and they floated her out on a mattress to get her out of the storm. Right. And that was in the 1960s. Right. It wasn't that long ago. So yeah. when we think no, about Nobody was here to help you. You had to you, help They were yourself. on their own. Yep. Uh, and he can talk about different inlets and where they were from either his experience, his father's, or his grandparents. He can remember his grandparents clearly. And the interview we did was in this building. And they were born in the late 1800s. And he can clearly remember their stories. Amazing. On the Currituck Outer Banks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you bring up, uh, what is it, Currituck Inlet. Um, Absolutely. And did if I read the, I'm trying to decipher what I saw in the book. And was that, did he say that that was pretty much right on the North Carolina-Virginia border? It's confusing okay. because these inlets take in a lot of time and were named at different things. There was an inlet at one time pretty much right on that North Carolina. And that's what explains Knott's Island and some of that very rich duck hunting islands and marsh islands in the sound. Created by sediment. That was sediment that used to come through inlets. Gotcha. But Ernie would point out there was a time when ships under full sail could go dock at Isn't the Curry Tuck Courthouse yeah. under full sail. Isn't that crazy? And then the other great story about Ernie that I always find amazing in our era that we live in, when Ernie was an elected official, he protested the federal government closing the beach right. and said this is the only place in the United States where you have to go through a fence or a locked gate to move from state to state. And Ernie disagreed with it and would frequently drive around the fence and go go up to where he had always done. Imagine someone just putting yeah, a fence up. I could see And that. the judge said, stop doing that. I'm going to throw you in jail. Ernie didn't stop. And the judge said, I'm going to keep throwing you in prison, a federal prison in Williamsburg, while he was an elected official. And <laughs> folks would go up. What was his title again as elected official? I want to say he was chairman of the board for a while, and he was also a commissioner. So he did this when he was both. Of Currituck County. So the Currituck County staff would yeah. go up to, this is a true story. Yeah up to the federal prison, and he would sign papers that would operate the county in federal prison. And he said, the federal judge said, look, you're an elected official. i got to get you out of here. And he's like, well, you give the people who grew up in that community lifetime access to that fence, and I will voluntarily not drive on it anymore because I'll have access, but we'll have an agreement. And he did. The federal judge allowed that to happen. Right. So in this day and age, think about an elected official voluntarily going to federal prison right. to protest the actions of the federal government. Honestly, I'm not sure how much that's happened in the history of America. Yeah, it's a gutsy move, no doubt It's a about gutsy it. move, but stood on principle. That goes yep. back to that defiant streak, but also paved the way for the community of the Currituck Outer Banks to continue to have access, although to this day, that is a dying community. There's only three or four or five is of those right? keys left. Tell... Tell us, because I've heard this before, but tell us what you have to show, if you were one of these people, what you have to show when you get to that fence. Well, you'd actually have a key. You'd have a physical key on a lock, and you can use the key and drive up. And usually you just show the key, and they interpret that, the, the federal authorities in the Back Bay National Wildlife Refuge, as you have access to either the, the idea is a fresh market for fish, Okay. Uh, or that you're coming and going in the normal course of your business. 
But as a reminder, the federal government hasn't opened that even in the worst of hurricanes. <laughs> right. There's never been a hurricane since that fence went up where they have opened that and allowed that as an access point north. They feel very strongly about it. Ernie was the one who said, I want our community to be able to access this. And the federal government, through Ernie's actions, relented. That's amazing. Because it, they knew that we've got a, an elected official in prison. We need to come up with a compromise here. Right. But imagine that in this day and age. I, yeah, it is It is crazy. I, I feel like I also heard there was a, uh, a rule that the, the key holder had to be behind the wheel or something like that, not passed out in the back, or couldn't be transferred from family member to family member. There has always been a debate on who is driving to market okay. <laughs> and that kind of thing. I, I can't say it's always been the key person that had the key who was behind the wheel because, in theory— if you sent your son to take fish to market, that still falls under, I think, the intent. Right. But what the federal government did to recognize that was to say the keys do not last in perpetuity. They end with right. the person they were issued to. Wow. So if you were working here at that time, you got a key. It is not transferable. It ends at the end of your natural life. Right. So the keys, of course, over time have gotten smaller. And there will come a day in the not-too-distant future when that access is ended right amazing um there's there's a little bit of a mention of uh barter and trade um oh absolutely and i think it's i think it's fun to just recognize the fact that when the outer banks was just you know shipwrecked people <laughs> that they that they thrived on shipwrecks and and they they uh or took whatever they could find and they used it for the rest of the years. Absolutely. Folks on the Outer Banks who could catch fish would readily trade for things like produce. The Outer Banks couldn't grow very much, if anything. Right. So they would trade, and this was well documented, uh, inland communities such as Elizabeth City, Edenton, even mainland Currituck would trade all the time back and forth for the things they wanted. So we often tend to think of the early, what I'll call the earlier Outer Banks, as, quote, poor. And poor, I think we define as not having a full wallet. Ernie would counter that, though, and he would say, we may not have had a full wallet, but we had everything we needed right. because we could trade for it. Right. And I think there are a lot of those really interesting stories, how his family came to own the Washwoods Coast Guard Station, and then also some of the stories about people on the Outer Banks and how they earned a living and built a, a life for themselves, I think, were really interesting. Right. And, and the fact that he lived to be, what, 90 years old? I want to say he was 94. 94. I think there was, Ernie, there was some debate of exactly what year he was born in. And I've heard people say when you write a book, a lot of people bring stories to you and will have a different memory of something okay. that occurred, which is not unusual. But you'd go back and ask Ernie about it, and Ernie, to his amazement, to my amazement, rather, could name the people who were in the room when it happened. He'd be like, no, I voted for that in 1972. <laughs> he was in the room, and he was in the room, and he was wow. in the room. It was hard to argue yeah. because his memory was so clear on it. So he would often come back with, no, let me set the record straight there. Right. And, yeah. And my point is, I don't think you get to live to 90 or 94 by being, you know, broken destitute i mean no and he and was not a, a bed bound anything like that right he, he was active up until the very end you would see him riding around he had a pair of cowboy boots and a bolo tie nice <laughs> uh, he was very social 
he loved entertainment. He loved moving around and talking to people right up until late in his life. His daughter, who lives up in Virginia Beach, would come see him every now and again. But Ernie was self-sufficient nice. and resented the idea that he couldn't be Right, and was very proud of that self-sufficiency. But you and I might say if, if we saw someone today pull up in a pickup truck, an old pickup truck, and get out with a cowboy hat and a pair of boots on, we might kind of smile. Right. Um, Ernie would get out, and you'd say, there goes a cowboy. Yeah. And, you know, he, he could just as happily ride a horse into town as he could a pickup truck. And did he live on the ranch all the way up until the end? Until the, he lived all the way up in his entire life. He lived in a home in four-wheel drive up in Corova Beach. And he built Corova Beach yeah. and Swan Beach. Before, that was just the Currituck Outer Banks, and there weren't communities. Through his work as an elected official, but also as a developer, he... You, he carved out the canals in the four-wheel drive community. Dug them out. We sometimes wonder, how did these canals get here? Well, they got there because Ernie dug them. Wow. And he put those communities really on the map. Tourism was the one that filled in and made them popular, but Ernie and his fellow commissioners are the ones who built the concept of how that region could be developed. So people say, well, what do you talk about a legacy? The legacy is tourism on the Currituck Outer Banks, but also, if Ernie were sitting here, a heritage of Curry Tuck County. He, I think he would be feel very strongly about that. Right. And there's there's two things kind of on the horizon potentially. And one is obviously the mid Currituck County Bridge yep. and also the possibility of paving the roads. And you and I spoke about this last mm-hmm. time, but paving the roads up into Corova Beach. Do you know what kind of thoughts you had about those I did. subjects? I, I asked him those questions specifically. Ernie said on term, when it comes to the bridge, they've been talking about it since the 1950s. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, Clark, I can remember when I was driving to Oceana to go to high school, we knew we needed a bridge. Funny. And he said, so I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> and which, which to this day, I think is the best one sentence summary of the bridge. Right. Is, it, is that just his cynicism of the whole system or the, I the government? I think he or? thought that he recognized he was an elected official. So he recognized that some folks wanted it and some folks didn't. And right. he recognized it was really expensive and that our local community couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. He was practical. Sure. And he knew that the decision around the bridge would probably be made outside of Currituck County. And so he was a little cynical about growth in Raleigh and Charlotte. I think he might say, why would those folks in Charlotte come buy us a bridge? Right. So, and there may be some truth to that. And then in terms of paving the roads and four-wheel drive, I think Ernie was the first to point out private property. I go back to his ability to develop private property. But I think at the same time, he would point out the fragility of the economy and also point out the that, hey, once you bring in a road, then you have, again, with his elected official hat on, taxation without representation, he would say, hey, you know what, Uh, now we need police, now we need fire, now we need utilities, now we need buildings to house them, now they need somewhere to eat. And he would say, that is the gateway to making the Currituck Outer Banks not what it's always been. At the same time, that's what Nags Head and Duck and Kitty Hawk look like for many years. And I think that's important to say. And But he would per- certainly point out the fragility of the economy and say it was never intended. The infrastructure won't support mm-hmm. what it is today. And there's a lot of truth to that. Right. Uh, and he said, but we just had no idea. <laughs> right. Um, let's see. That kind of bounced around pretty good. Uh, anything else uh, about Ernie Bowden you want to talk about? Anything in the book that we... Uh... 
you know, I've skipped over. Number one, I would always say we need a lot more books like this because we are yeah. blessed that we are surrounded by some remarkable people who, in a big chunk of their lives, carved out what I think is a unique American story on the Outer Banks right. in a time when the Outer Banks was about as remote as the surface of the moon. Yeah. And I think we can't overemphasize that. Yeah. And I'm proud that we got to do it during his lifetime because we also, in addition to the emotional aspects of the satisfaction of being able to share it with his family, we also got to ask questions. Did it really happen this way? Right. What would you have done differently? And I go back to the third point. The only way we know where we're going is to understand how we got where we are. And when you hear Ernie say, we never could have imagined, right. that's a pretty good indication of, here. that's how we got where we are, and it's a great story. But now we are informed that, hey, that might be us. Right. We may not be able to, in turn, imagine where the future lies, but we need to think about it. Well, you know, you bring up heritage, and you know, no, nobody had deeper roots than he did no. on in Curtuck County. Uh, so, to respect that heritage is, is pretty important, and but I think very important to him. Yeah, yeah, and you know, was he probably a little partial? Absolutely. Could he? Was he allowed to be partial? Absolutely. I would describe the Bowden family. And this is a little bit of a twist of phrase, but I think it's accurate. It's almost an ocean tribe yeah. to a family that carved out a living on the Currituck Outer Banks for hundreds of years. Yeah. And during a time, again, when it was fundamentally remote, that's a unique American story. Not yeah. unlike Polynesian travelers in ancient right. times or Native Americans. Right. This was an ocean tribe in a very remote place for right. a long time. And I think that alone says a lot about the fortitude of some of those folks who were here. Imagine your father being born the same year as the Wright brothers yeah. and the experience that your father had on the Outer Banks. Right. And at the time of his passing may have, in his mind, in his mind's eye, have seen more of our journey. This is not to be dramatic. I think it's the truth. Had seen a greater share of the journey of the Outer Banks, arguably, than any other living person. Yeah. As with multiple hats, as an elected yeah. official, yeah. as a private businessman. With different eyeballs. Ab so he had a lot of perspective. Right. And w was happy to share it. <laughs> that, that's the most important part. Nothing like a good storyteller to, uh, to fill in all that information. Um, and I don't want to create a, uh, a sideshow, but w what's the status of the ranch right now? Ernie has descendants. And I think they own property in four-wheel drive. Property in four-wheel drive has gotten more valuable how and many, things like that. Can, can we say how many acres it might be, roughly? I can't speak for the family. And I think, <clears throat> as we know, over time, descendants tend to divide things sure. and sell things. I would defer to his daughter, who I won't guess her age, but she's not, <laughs> she's not 24. Gotcha. Uh, and I think the world of her, too. And then he has grandsons who are very active uh, in the four-wheel drive community. Are they? Okay. Uh, so his grandsons still to this day... Um, work in the four-wheel drive and nice. I think very much understand the importance of that. Uh, the Bowden family, there are other relatives in the area, so they are still out there. Okay. Um, but I can't, I won't speak to exactly what their footprint is, but I, I think, without putting words in their mouth, they share the same sense of history okay. in the Croatuck Outer Banks that Ernie did. Nice. So it should be, hopefully it's preserved and it, it'll be good. And I think broadly, if we ever wonder how the place was built, uh, there's a great quote that says, history is nothing more than the sum of biography. And if we are able to summarize biographies of a handful of people 
we know how we got where we are. Excellent. Any other books or projects coming up? I think there might be one out there. I think there's a pretty interesting story right now on the preservation of some old Outer Banks buildings. Uh, As the Outer Banks has developed, there's some scientific principle that says when you see an extreme on one end, you see a corresponding extreme on the other. And it's a big scientific word I can't remember. But we've seen this rapid birth or, or explosion of development. Right. And I think that paints more contrast on some of the old buildings. So if I had to guess, there's probably something about preservation in terms of the old buildings are unique, not because of the wood and the nails, but because of the stories they tell. Right. And within these buildings is a lot of pretty interesting stories that I think are worth sharing. So maybe that's on the horizon. Okay. I'll be looking for it. Thank you. So the name of the book is Memories of the Currituck Outer Banks, as told by Ernie Bowden. Clark Twitty uh, took some interviews and put them in writing and published that, what was it, about a year, year and a half ago, I guess? A little bit more than that, but not too, you're, okay. you're really close, I'm probably wrong, but yeah, in the past couple of years. And you can, you can find that book at some of the local bookstores here, and if you can't get here, you can always probably find it on Amazon. And if I can, all proceeds go to the Outer Banks Community Foundation. Excellent. Ernie's legacy about education, I love that connection. Excellent. What, now, what are you? Does he have a scholarship? Or? He will one day. Okay. Uh, over time, as the book sells, we'll take nice. every last red penny <laughs> that comes out of those book sales and donate to the Outer Banks Community Foundation, which will administer a scholarship for the Curry Tuck Outer Banks. Nice, Clark. Thanks for meeting with me today. It's a pleasure, and thank you for what you do. My pleasure. Many thanks to Clark Twitty for sharing his stories of Ernie Bowden and the Northern Beaches. Be sure to pick up a copy at an Outer Banks bookstore. And if you can't get to an Outer Banks bookstore, you can definitely buy a copy on Amazon. Also, be sure to check out my website, treasuresoftheouterbanks.com, and sign up for the weekly email so we can stay in touch. I promise I won't be annoying. I'd like to bring your attention to a new page on the site where I sell merchandise. It's not too early to start shopping for Christmas. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and until next time, make it a good one.